0: In this session, we discuss the experiences of ethnically, sexually, and gender-diverse communities, the influence of an intersectional minority stress model, and its hopeful integration into a family therapy framework. The After the podcast, I am David Zamani and I am your host. In this session, I'll be speaking with Dr. Dimaji Gutierrez. Dimaji Gutierrez is a licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health practitioner and has a PhD in couple and family therapy. She's an assistant professor in the couple and family therapy program at Alliant International University, of San Diego. Dr. Gutierrez has a passion for working with multiple diverse communities and intersectionality. She has published and presented nationally on minority stress intersectionality of self and family systems, support systems, resiliency of sexually diverse and gender expansive Latinx population, intersectional culturally competent care, and women of color in higher education. She uses a narrative, experiential, and feminist approach, utilizing techniques of advocacy and empowerment. Additionally, Dr. Gutierrez has served as a clinical coordinator and family therapist for the LGBTQ counseling clinic in Iowa in the Gender and Family Project at Ackerman Institute for Family and She is also the co-chair of the Early Career Community in Africa. On her free time, she loves exploring San Diego food and beaches with her wife and daughter. Imaj, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, I want to ask, uh, what's been capturing your attention these days in your work?
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, yes, there's so much, I think that is resonating and calling um, in my work. And so um, when it comes to my overall framework being intersectionality and minority stress, um, I've been doing a lot of work really just figuring out, okay, where does this fit in couple and family therapy? And also how well it fits with couple and family therapy because of our systems framework. And so when it comes to... um, Intersectionality and Minority Stress and Systems, I've been working alongside um, here at Students at Alliant of creating a framework uh, that we can work with sexually and gender diverse um, communities, and uh, particularly BIPOC sexually and gender diverse communities. And so with this framework, we're seeing, okay, so here are all the intersecting identities, and here are the navigations of daily life, and here are the minority stressors that they're experiencing. And as clinicians, how can we work with our clients through uh, an empowerment and resiliency framework rather than focusing on those minority stressors? Um, and just to explain minority stress, uh, it was created um, back in the 90s by Jan Meyer. And he identifies as a cis uh, male, gay, white man. And he created the minority stress model um, to recognize the um, stress that sexually diverse communities face being not the dominant um, sexuality community, so heterosexual. And so then there is tension between um, being sexually diverse and not being part of that dominant community. And so those stressors come in internal and uh, distal stress. So distal stress being discrimination, violence, proximal stress being internalized heterosexism, concealment. Um, and then from those stressors are mental health outcomes, usually adverse mental health, like depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, um, But also within that model is identity navigation and coping mechanisms, such as social supports, chosen families, um, interpersonal resiliency. And so I've taken that model and along with my students and being able to process and how to expand that to BIPOC LGBTQ communities. Um, And so yeah, that's where my work is right now.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So, well, I think it's important for, me, for myself to situate or locate myself as cisgender and heterosexual. So forgive me as I venture into some questions here. Because the way I'm understanding some of what you're saying is that there is this minority stress model, which is, I've heard that reference several times in my own history. So I'm imagining that there's a certain prolificness of that idea. And that perhaps in your work and some of the work you're doing with your students, there's like some limitations. But the minority stress model that's created that's then propelling some kind of creative work into constructing a new framework that is different is that a correct assumption I'm making
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: do you mind sharing what some of those limitations have been or what you've noticed in your work as the limitations of the minority stress model and kind of the energy that you've gotten to do the work you're doing
1: yeah and so the minority of stress model um, has been so useful, let me start off with that, because of um, just having a framework to understand experiences of sexually diverse communities. But it, when it was created, it was created from a white, cis, male, uh, gay framework. And so when you think about, uh, I'm going to go back and forth between sexually and gender diverse and LGBTQ um, and I'm doing that because sexually and gender diverse is uh, more expansive and inclusive rather than labeling LGBTQ. But I know a lot of people are more um, more commonly known LGBTQ. Uh, so <clears throat> within research for the community, a lot of it um, historically has been still white and cis, and um, within that perspective, and so. What um, is upcoming, and I feel very grateful to be part of this um, upcoming research too, is that intersectionality piece and being able to really hone in on culture and BIPOC communities and experiences uh, of people who are part of the LGBTQ community and uh, the teen community, the Black community, Asian community, or various culture, anti-ethnic communities, um, and what it means to not only have minority stressors um, from sexual orientation, but also minority stressors from gender expression and identity, from culture, from race, um, and um, and those experiences. And so that's how uh, my team and I are really trying to expand and contribute to the upcoming work that's coming for the Minority Stress Model. Just really exciting.
0: It's exciting. I mean, the endeavor of creating a framework is both exciting and, I don't know what the word is, uh, terrifying? Daunting. Daunting. There we <laughs> go. That's the word I'm looking for. How, how do you go about constructing a framework that's, I don't know, I guess I'll be honest here, Dimaji in some of the ways that I've experienced attempts to talk about culture, right? There's necessarily like simplifications I'm required to make and the simplifications are ultimately political and therefore I'm necessarily marginalizing somebody in any representation of a culture based on my interpretation. So there's a lot of work. Um, and I guess that all that to say like, yeah, I'm curious how it is that you're kind of approaching this framework construction for such an expansive community, that's a fair question. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it reminds me of—I um, shared this with my students last week. I had a professor tell me um, in a research course what it's like when we do research and how much are we, well, how much can we really take on. And he drew a picture of a fish on the whiteboard and put in some scales. And I was like, okay, so here's the fish. Fish represents everything about research. And for example, if you're studying like anxiety, the fish is all anxiety, but within anxiety is so much, be that interventions, experience, um, demographic, uh, history. And so there is no way that you will be able to be a researcher for all of those processes. But you will be able to find, um, one, what really calls to you, and two, what you can do within your lifetime. And so he was like, then he circled a scale. And it's like, the scale is going to be what you're going to do for your lifetime. And will it be the whole fish? No, but you'll be contributing to that scale. Um, And so I've always remembered that and that's how I feel uh, coming in with this framework, because there is so much, um, and particularly with uh, the model that we're uh, and framework that we're trying to create, we're combining that intersectionality um, and particularly Raffenbrenner's ecological model um, and then um, uh, such a logical model and then minority stress. And so all of that is... Um, Is so expansive. And there's no way that we'll be able to capture all of those pieces. Um, But it's so cool to be able to even put these things together and see, okay, so what can we do with this? And if anyone else will eventually take it on too and see how they can further expand it, or what pieces are they going to take um, from from that framework. And for me, um, what my goal is ultimately with this framework is being able to translate it into clinical assessment and interventions um, with the community. And that is where the model hasn't really, what's that word? It hasn't trekked. It's like unknown territory um, when it comes to that clinical, uh, physical, real-time application. And so that's where... I am going with that. So to see what can happen with it later on in life or whenever, um, I think we'll just be in the cosmos.
0: <laughs> yes, I love that. Well, yeah, it's. I really appreciate the way you're speaking to that. It's kind of comforting for myself too and some of the work I'm doing. Uh, there's humility in it and respecting. I guess there's a way that I'm drawn to your scale. I, I guess I you know, I, I think about you know, in high school, it's been a while, when I would be reading biology textbooks, and there'd be paragraphs packed with knowledge, and each sentence is maybe one scientist's lifetime of work. And I'm kind of thinking of the scale that you're describing. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit uh, about the scale, if you're willing to share it, like, uh, particularly as someone who's positioned in family therapy world, um, in some of the Social locations I described, like as a cisgendered male uh, occupying heterosexual life, um, what might the scale kind of orient you to, or have you thinking about? It's mm. a
1: good question.
0: And um, or maybe it's not for me. Maybe I'm assuming that I should know anything about scale. Or work. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh no,
1: I think um, it makes me think because even when I I haven't shared my identities, (laughs) that I'm Afro-Latinx and um, Dominican, but I also identify as cis-female and femme-presenting and lesbian. And so those are the um, able-bodied, and so those are the locations that I navigate my world through, and also the way that I'm seeing um, this framework and model and ultimately the the scale that um, I'm a part of. And so I think what, where, the. In, I'm thinking of like audience, like the where this framework is going to go, audience wise, is that I want it to, I want it to go to the, um, BIPOC LGBTQ community, and um, that is where I think the empowerment and reflection and expansion will be, and then. I also want it to be exposed um, and further understood by um, dominant communities, like heterosexual, white, um, and cis, uh, cisgender, too. Um, and so, how is that going to look? I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that when we do trainings for, and I say we, um, but those of us who do a lot of intersectionality work and work with uh, sexually gender diverse communities and overall diverse communities, Mm -hmm. is that here we've been doing the work and then we present it to dominant communities. So there is some form of exposure and understanding. Um, So I feel that that could be the first stage But then I feel that there's to be a second stage of okay. Now that you've had that you've had some exposure, what does it look like in your practice, and what does it look like for you that you have power and privilege within, um, particularly Western culture? How can you utilize and understand power to then translate empowerment for clients who identify as the community, for supervisees who identify the community, Um, and ultimately anyone who you, who's in your life and who identifies with the community. And so I think that's where like a lot of work when it comes to like social justice, cross-cultural work gets stuck where yes, here's the understanding and exposure, um, but then there's nothing else. And then here's the community who we're part of the community and we still continue doing the work, which yes, we'll continue doing the work because we're passionate about it. Um, but then that also puts the work on us when, it needs to be shifted to, and the work also needs to be put on those who identify with the majority. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> That's uh, where my mind went.
0: Well, it does. I mean, there's a way where to expose kind of why I'm on this track, uh, there's a little bit of history for myself. Um, so I think as listeners, if they've listened to other podcasts before episodes, um, I work with a refugee middle eastern population uh, largely experiencing domestic violence but let's just say um generally the refugee middle eastern community out here in uh, san diego primarily east county and it's really complicated to talk about i'm likely going to trespass into some things i shouldn't say um, but i'm going to do my best in the work that i've been doing with these communities i i hold some values around um, inclusiveness you know, and that includes supporting queer communities and sexually and gender expansive communities. And in occupying that preference or value system, my clients also interpret that as occupying a fairly colonial or maybe imperialist stance, because the idea from their histories and worlds is like, oh, you're imposing these ideas from us. But, you know, I'm thinking about like the Iranian government using that language. It's like, oh, that's the West trying to impose this stuff onto us, which becomes their own like tactic of power and control um, and oppression. So it's not that clean. And in the work that I'm doing, trying to occupy also a decolonial ethic, my progressive stance, if I could call it that, even saying it feels a little funky, but dare I say, Um starts to take on a colonial edge but i don't know if it does that's too clean of a cut if that makes sense so there's a way that i was my question is really interested in like how how might i introduce these conversations with families especially like BIPOC, culturally diverse communities who've been impacted by broader colonial history who are not interested uh perhaps in a gender and sexually expansive way of thinking about the world, but their kids are. And you know, there was like this kind of interesting ethical issue, situation that we encountered where you know, one of um, one of the kids speaks English and the parent doesn't can you use English to partition certain conversations around gender and sexuality? Is that ethical? I don't know. It does feel there's an English supremacy there. We're using like the language of colonialism to make space a safe space for these conversations. I don't know if you can see. I'm kind of like now I'm I'm confusing myself because it gets into some unclear territory for me too. So I'm I'm appreciating too, the uncharted waters that you described yourself venturing into with this work. So, I guess I'm bringing forward that history too, because I don't know if this is like kind of addressing the intersection of like BIPOC communities, if I could use that language, and this gender and sexual expansive set of discourses.
1: Yeah, yeah, actually, I think it it very much does. Um, And it reminds me of a workshop, um, or what was it? Mm It was a, a group I was facilitating with um, Sean Giamatti. Uh, I think I'm mispronouncing mis- 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 his name. Giamatti.
0: No, because I just interviewed him last week for last <laughs> episode. I'm not going to try it, but I don't think that's right. I uh, don't think. <laughs> that's how I said it the first time, and that was incorrect. So, Sean, if I you're listening, forgive me.
1: <laughs> I, I'm forgive sorry, us. too. <laughs> I'm just emailing back and forth.
0: I think it's Jamateng.
1: That does sound, <clears throat> that sounds better. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry, Sean. <laughs> love you.
0: Um,
1: sorry. And so it reminds me of um, this fantastic visual he presented in, um, in the group, which was, and now I, I definitely use it with my clients and um, when I teach as well. But when a um, child comes out, Um, no matter how they are, they've been on uh, identity journey, sexual or gender identity journey for some time because they've had to explore, navigate what their identity is within their family, um, within their community, within themselves. And so they've been navigating for a long time. And uh, when they come out, they've already been, oh, I know this is a podcast (laughs) because I can't see the visual, but they're like over here. Um, And they're like, okay, I'm out, and I really hope my family accepts me and supports me, and um, I don't know how it's going to go. I hope it goes well. And so then here's family who may not be supportive or accepting, and they may never be supportive and accepting. Um, But when that child comes out, the family then just starts their sexual and gender identity uh, journey now too. And so for the child, it may have taken them so many years, and now they're here. And now for the family, it's going to take them so many years or even so many more years to get to um, any form of place where they're going to be when it comes to sexuality and gender Um, and then the relationship they have with their child. Um, And so uh, that reminded me a lot of culture um, and um, communities where so many tradition and value is um, the fact of having a marriage in the church, for example, or that man, uh, cis man, he said marry a cis woman, cis female. or that they need to procreate, have kids, um, or even Latinx culture, like machismo and mariismo, where um, males um, need to take care of the home, need to take care of their wives and children, and women also take care of the home, but they're in the home and they raise the kids. And um, So those are very uh, traditional set values in the church um, and religiosity, which are very huge. Um, and I'm talking specifically around Latinx culture right now. Um, And that dates, it's so strong because it dates back all the way to um, uh, when Spaniards and colonists came and tried to take over the land and did slavery and um, were violent and awful to the community that that were indigenous and they had to somehow survive and um, I believe the term is called Santeria, like it's all the way back to the slave trade, and so the only way they were able to really survive was to continue their traditions and their bonds, and so um, that essence and foundation of survival is intergenerational and has roots in how strong value is within culture and communities, and again, particularly with Latinx and let's say um, Black and African American cultures too, and so. Um, so, when there is uh, n- misalignment with those values, it not, not only is a small thing, it's a really, it's a really big thing because it shakes a family to its core. I had a pro- another professor once tell me that when you come out, he was Latino, um, and he said, once you come out in a Latinx family, it's like dropping an atomic bomb. And I completely agree. Um, Not for all families, um, but for some it definitely is, because it's like shaking that historical and contemporary uh, family value. And so all of that to say, yes, (laughs) there is definitely a huge tension when it comes to um, the, yeah, here I'm supposed to, or here's like a lot of Western individualized value of, yes, come out, be you but there's so much more culture, family, history when it comes to BIPOC communities.
0: Oh, I'm really captivated by what you're saying here, Damaji, let me know if this is a fair rendition of what you're saying, that there's something about how it is that when, um, let's just say like uh, a member of a Latinx family in this example you're sharing, um, shares that they're not part of the dominant discourse around gender or sexuality. And the ways that like then that starts off this other journey that various family members are on so in there there's like the honoring of the multiplicity of paths and timelines that these family members are on and then that in the history of some of those really sacred discourses are like very they're like both survival mechanisms and ways that the family has continued forward and stayed connected that honors or not honors, but addresses a colonial, violent and oppressive history in which survival was necessary. And I don't know. I don't know if this is the right place that I'm landing with this. Is there a way in that, that perhaps with BIPOC communities, there's a rejecting of like a notion of like authenticity to identity, like this idea that like perhaps this person will never accept you, and that you. Kind of just put on performance for them when you're around them to be with them. Is that I, that might be too oversimplified of a
1: rendition. Well, I think it's it's part of it. And so, like, just thinking of like even the, um, the scales scales of experience that that's like a scale um, of experience where there's that um, concealment of sexual, um, gender identity, and that has to be around your family. So then you can preserve your family relationships and values. And so then it is putting on a show when that's not who you fully are. So then it's like, um, think that, um, it's coming up for me is that tension between, um, different parts of identity, be that here's my identity when it comes to sexuality and gender and um, expression, and then here's my family identity and how important that has been to me my entire life. So I think it's that tension.
0: Yeah, which makes sense to me. Um, And again, I'm in generalities here, but in my broad experience, when I've talked to, I'll say Latinx um, students and students who identify with the Middle Eastern. When I say Middle Eastern I'm speaking to like uh, Arabic speaking and farsi speaking communities. Um, I don't know, like especially like the narrative stuff, for example, when we get into like the multiplicity of identity, like, oh yeah, of course. That makes perfect sense because I'm always, you know, putting on a face and depending on where I'm at. Um, and the idea of like a family identity, I feel like makes a little bit more sense compared to some of my American counterparts, where it's a little bit more individualistic of an identity. There's not necessarily a broader family identity, there's a, shame. There's a sense that there's like family honor or a broader family story to be concerned about. I don't know if this is uh, reflective of any experiences that you've had, but it makes sense that like perhaps in this framework, if I could refer to that, that like there isn't necessarily a necessity for authenticity of identity or like permanence of identity across context
1: yeah i don't know yeah i know that that,
0: tragic in a way too but sorry i didn't interrupt yeah no i
1: that um i think it makes a lot of sense um and i think it goes into what you're saying too of just like the the vastness of experience and identity and all that goes into it. Um, cause as you were talking to, it's like not only, and this is what makes me think of like the ecological model too, because then you have like the self and then you have family and you have community and culture too. And then you have the societal standards of so particularly Western culture. Then there is, um, having to navigate the lack of understanding, um, with dominant majority versus those who are part of the community who can be, depending even demographically, few and far between. Like when I lived in the Midwest, I was one of the only few um, Latinx lesbians that I, Afro Latinx lesbians that I knew, and if I came across any, um, they were majority um, Mexican identifying, which you know, we still are able to. Um, share and be with each other in culture, but we still have different experiences because I'm Caribbean and um, they're um, uh, so, uh, Southern America. What is it? Central America. Um, <laughs> and so even that uh, is another nuance that comes. It's like a, it's like a never-ending onion. There's <laughs> so many layers that will always come
0: i an onion soup, where they just keep bubbling up and moving around. And...
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Yes. You can tell. Onion soup does not
1: sound good, but yeah, <laughs> I
0: think it's a good metaphor. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate this, Dumaji because uh, it's, a, it's something I've chal- uh, it's been a challenge for myself, especially because I'm not clear at what point my blinders are blinding me, if that makes sense. Well, I'm pretty excited to hear about some of the work that you and your students are doing. Um, if I could ask kind of broadly if it's okay, like, hey, like, what are some of your hopes or like visions of the future with some of this work? Like you said it would land into some clinical assessments in some other context. I wonder if you could share a little bit more about
1: that. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and as you we were speaking too, is thinking about blinders. Um, I might be on too. Even though I'm doing this work, I also have blinders being that I have privilege um, that I'm feminine presenting and I identify as cis female. Um, and so when it comes to uh, trans non-binary gender expansive experiences, I am an ally and I'm here for empowerment and I've worked so much with the community, but I will never know that experience. And so um, there is a gender minority stress model too, um, which is another expansion from the minority stress model. But
0: even in that,
1: in that context is where I hope this model and framework, this framework that I'm creating with my students would be taken. Um, and even with uh, ability to, um, and that's another privilege that I hold. And so... That's, um, so when it comes to that expansion, I hope it continues that way. And then clinically, I don't know. I think I'm I'm excited to see what it even looks like, um, to bring it into the clinical world. Um, I think there, um, I think there might be one, um, paper or measure that I've read about that, um attempts to bridge what it's like to um, assess for minority stressors. And that, gosh, I don't remember what the article was or the author, but um, what I am hoping is not only to assess for stressors, but move into resiliency and empowerment work. Um, with clients, so it's being able to do both and, and that's where a lot of, um, we actually just, uh, my students and I just presented at the National Council of Family Relations um, in November for a current project that we're doing, um, which is a mixed methodology for um, BIPOC LGBTQ communities and the loss of safe spaces, minority stressors, and ambiguous loss from COVID-19. And what we found, which was really interesting, was that there wasn't a huge... And this is a really good thing, but it's really interesting. There wasn't a huge um, experience when it came to uh, minority stress. Like There wasn't an increase in minority stress experience. Um, And even with the loss of safe spaces, that it was there, but it wasn't as impactful as we it was going to be when it came to experience of mental health. And what was really interesting with that is that even um, doing the work of minority stress and even when we think about mental health overall, a lot of our narrative and framework is in stress and um, being able to um, understand and bring about and work with those stressors. But so little of our work is on empowerment and resiliency, too. Um, and so it seemed that we, ha- we had that framework as a research team that because we were coming from minority stress, so we were expecting to see some stressors, but we saw resiliency instead. And it was that realization that this is where the work needs to go. It needs to go to empowering the communities and navigating um, identity. And what's really, I think, incredible about the community too, and exhausting when it comes to experience, is that there is this already layer of resiliency that they have, because they have to navigate so many different avenues of power, privilege, and oppression with multiple diverse identities. And when COVID hit, our society overall had not experienced a pandemic like this that we're ultimately still going through. Um, and so there, there wasn't this layer of resiliency and there, there wasn't this overall preparedness in a way that the community had, but the BIPOC LGBTQ community potentially have seemed to have already this framework of resiliency um, to be able to navigate this, um, this pandemic. And so when it comes to clinical work of what is it like to have conversations and processes to resiliency and empowerment while honoring the stress and the navigation, rejection, violence that the community has also faced or the clients that have, that they faced. And then what is it like to not only be Um, to not only bring out resiliency and have empowerment, but then what is the next step to translate that into action and advocacy for clients? And what does that mean to them? Um, And what does it mean for us as therapists? How do we do empowerment advocacy for our clients? What do we need to do in our offices? How do we even... um, portray our identities or how do we share our identities? Um, what theories or models um, does that work with? Do that, that that work needs to like be expanded more upon? Um, and of course I'm going to be coming from an experiential narrative feminist approach and seeing how that fits, which I think, I think it'll fit very well, but of course I won't know until we try it out. Um, but, but yeah, that's where I hope, that's where I hope it all goes um, this, Moving
0: forward in that way. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm really excited and grateful for the work you're doing. Um, Yeah, and it's uh, I'm gonna go look at some of the work you did with the intersection of the stuff we talked about in COVID pandemic. Because if I remember correctly, I don't know if it was drawn from or mirrored the experience of people in pods in like poly relationships. Like it was something around the ways that practices of being in pods and little communities or, I don't know, I don't want to misrepresent it, so I'm going to be, uh, just stop there. But I remember reading something distantly about there was some existing practices that supported resiliency to uh, ways that we were fractured as communities and during the COVID pandemic. Well, I want to like, really be grateful to you, Damaji, uh, and I'm really excited to see some of the work that you and your students come forward with. I think it'll be informative for my work, at least, and I'm sure many others. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Is this an okay place for us to pause here today?
1: Yeah, and let me just uh, give a shout out to who my students are, because they're amazing um, Courtney Rago, Kaylin Zeiger, Kimberly Rodriguez Jimenez, Simone McGee, Brianna Schiff. Dana Warner. And then the professor who told me all about the scales was Dr. Jacob Priest from Iowa.
0: Yes, thanks for bringing your community into it, making them visible. Thanks, Samaji.
1: Yes, of course. Thank you so much.